Lord, we're grateful for this morning. We're thankful for uh, the rain that you've given us. We're thankful that we can be here to, uh, to study your word, to understand something that um, a short time ago kind of uh, caused uh, some, some curiosity. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to put that to bed so that we can um, more accurately know, more accurately wield the sword of truth. We make this request through the power and the authority of the Son. Amen. Okay, so um, Jacob was looking for a, for a title, and I just told him, well, maybe we could go with, was the Holy Spirit a false positive? I'm a little disappointed that um, Paul couldn't be here today because the whole reason that I'm doing this Sunday school class, Leighton, is because of Paul's question that he asked a couple of weeks ago. So... Uh, we're not, uh, so, so this is a, a one-off uh, for our Sunday school to discuss something that Paul brought up during the postscript two weeks ago when I, uh, during the last sermon that I had in Acts, and um, he brought up a really good question. And so, if you would please, uh, you know, I made the point in the sermon at the time in Acts chapter 1, Remember, Jesus has told the apostles at this time that they have to stay and to wait in Jerusalem. They're not to go anywhere. And, and why are they waiting? What are they waiting for? That's right, the Holy Spirit. That's the short answer. They're waiting to receive the Holy Spirit. And in fact, specifically in Acts um, um, 1, verse five, or well, 4 and 5, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So we have this promise by Jesus to the apostles that they're going to, future, receive the Holy Spirit. And then Paul, thank you, Paul, for being a troublemaker for all the right reasons, uh, pointed out in John, if you just flip back, actually, a couple of pages in your Bible to John chapter 20. And then we go down to verse 22. So this also, this time period right here in John 20, is after Jesus has been resurrected and he's had contact and he's with uh, at least some of his apostles at this time. And in verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And then we have verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Hmm. In John 20, he says, breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 1, he says, I need you to stay and wait because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. So, the question is, what's going on between the two? So, if we take off the table any kind of nonsense about, well, uh, you know, Acts isn't really historically accurate or there's some kind of contradiction. So, we're, gonna, we're not even going to address any of that kind of stuff. But I'm, so there were four different um, theories as to why... Uh, there is this, this difference uh, that's there. The first one is a linguistic one. So there are some people that say, here, I'm going to go with blue. 
There are some people that, that uh, say, well, in, if you look in the original Greek, there's no um, article before the word for Holy Spirit. Therefore, it is, um, it's not actually the Holy Spirit, but, you know, kind of a lowercase s, if you want to think of it that way, spirit. And so when Jesus is doing that, he's sending his spirit, but not like the the Holy Spirit. Um, what makes this one not really likely is that that same design is um, used in other portions of Scripture where the article is not there before the word Holy Spirit, and it clearly, in the context of what's being written, it clearly does mean the Holy Spirit. So that's really not consistent. Um, so probably not a good choice there. Our second one, our second option here, is that this is some form of a partial giving of the real Holy Spirit. A partial giving. So it's not like the fullness of the Spirit that they are going to receive. And I would even say that when, during our postscript, for those that were here when we were talking about it, I think I kind of leaned that way. I was kind of communicating that. Um, and I, you know, just kind of looking at the way things are worded. We have Jesus breathing on them, saying, receive the Holy Spirit. But then in Acts 1, it said, Jesus says, you will be uh, baptized with the Holy Spirit. So there's that sense of immersion, that sense of you are going to be completely covered. You're going to be thoroughly filled with the Holy Spirit. And then that's in verse 5. And then in Acts 1, uh, verse 8, it also says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come. So, um, so a second theory is that whatever Jesus is doing, that it isn't maybe that idea of baptism of the Holy Spirit, or it isn't that they receive the full, you know, power of the Holy Spirit. And so he was giving them the Holy Spirit, um, but I don't know, Holy Spirit light or something like that. Um, so that, that's one thought that's out there. Uh, what, the way one, uh, one person put it was it was like a sprinkling instead of a saturation, you know, to give, to give the, the, the image there. All right, our third option here is that it's actually synonymous. So the idea, the idea being that John, if we keep this in mind as far as the timing of when these things are authored, so John authoring, well, really, both his, well, authoring his gospel would have authored that after all of these things in Acts had taken place, right? If you just think through the chronology, he's experiencing what's being written about in John, but he doesn't actually write about that experience until after these things in Acts have occurred. The receiving of the Holy Spirit and them going out and being witnesses to Christ's resurrection and all the things that the apostles are called to do in their, uh, in their role as being apostles. And so it's after that that he has authored his gospel. And so the theory being with the kind of the synonymous, the way I'm putting it, the synonymous uh, option 
is that it's the same thing, but that this is John's super short way of, of describing it. So what, in other words, Acts 1 is a more thorough description of what John is saying in chapter 20. Um, so also one up. So, so basically what John, uh, in a matter of a few words in one verse, is communicating the experience of Acts 1, which is described over the course of basically a couple of chapters. So that is the third option as far as synonymous. And then we have our fourth one here. Our fourth one. In fact, I'm going to change. And I have to tell you that when I first saw these and was looking at it, and even hearing it, I'm guessing, your first inclination is to think, uh, I don't know, but I'm hoping to show you. The third one is that what takes place in John is actually symbolic that they did not actually, in reality, receive the Holy Spirit. And let me show you some reasons why here. So if you... If in your gut you kind of want to doubt that, I, actually I appreciate that. I think I tend to do those that as well because I think our, uh, our tendency when we read Scripture, if we truly trust and love Scripture, our, our tendency is to just say, yeah, but the plain reading or almost like my first impression of the reading is to go, well, that's what it says. I, and it seems, it, appear, it seems to me when I read it that this is what it's communicating so to, do, to think that it's doing anything other than what I'm uh, immediate, my first impressions of it, takes a little more work. And so let's look at that a little more work. And so doing that, I'm going to go through the four reasons. My plan is to go through the four reasons. I, I believe this is accurate. And then we're also going to talk about why it's this way. So this is support for the idea that, that John... 2022 is symbolic, and then we'll touch on the why. So, as to the reasons, okay. So one of the one of the reasons that people or or you will hear people either preach or teach on this as the rationale or kind of support for. Uh, the apostles receiving the Holy, uh, actually receiving the Holy Spirit in John is because of this action of Jesus breathing on them. And what is the automatic connection that you kind of make with that? Where do you go in the Bible? Oh, dry bones. I like that. Actually, I didn't even think about that. That's good. <laughs> uh, Steve. Genesis. Right. Right. He breathes life into man, right? And you're thinking, well, there you go. God breathes life into man. He gives them new life. Jesus breathes on them, so they just received new life right there, right? Like he's breathing on them. Well, so here's just one link. Just follow along with me through these things. So the first one then, as far as that, uh, that linguistic argument that's interesting, is that in Hebrew, um, in Hebrew, I guess again, there, there is an actual... Um, preposition that is included in the word that explicitly communicates 
that God is breathing into Adam. It, there's a preposition actually included in the word. So there's no question there that God is breathing into Adam. In this particular case, in the Greek, the word, the verb that's used basically is breathing on. That's like the, just the word breathing on. That's the way that we say it in English. And so that preposition isn't necessarily there. So what I'm saying is that there is a little bit of a difference here where it, it starts to make a little bit of a separation that in one case, God is breathing into man and the result is life. And in this case, we actually have Jesus breathing on is, is kind of, and, and I believe, I think it, in ESV, it might even say that, uh, John 20. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive. Okay, so that's just one little, one step. All right, so stick with me here. So we've got that, and, and I don't think this is on its own, certainly doesn't prove it, but um, it's, just, it, it's just showing that this argument or this sense of a one-for-one, God breathed into Adam, therefore he had life, and Jesus breathed on the apostles, and therefore, boom, they received the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, I think it weakens that a little bit, but we'll come back to that in just a minute. All right, the second one, and now, Mark, we're going to need the microphone. We're going to read a few verses. Um, The second one is this idea of what the, the New Testament, when it uses the word now, does it really mean right now, like this minute? And so let's look at a few verses. So, uh, Mark, if someone, are, are you going first? Or, okay, John 12, 23. Carol, John 12, 31. Uh, Sean, John 13, 31. And Steve, John 17, 5. So these are all coming out of the same book, right? Out of John, where we're talking about this whole issue uh, in John chapter 20. So in John 12, 23, what do you have, Mark? And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Okay, so he says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Let me flip back there. So that, and the context for this, um, Jesus, let me, 12, 23. Okay, so this is after, I believe this is after Jesus Uh, raised Lazarus. So, in other words, Jesus is not actually at, he's not being crucified. This isn't like a saying on the cross, or this isn't even taking place um, while Jesus is in front of Pilate or anything like that. He is saying right here that the hour has come for the man to be glorified, but it actually isn't taking place at that specific moment. Okay, Carol. John 12, 31. So this is just a few verses later. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Okay, so now we have not just this hour, but we actually have the word now. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when he says that, and whatever the implications are, we're not getting into all of the theological depth of what that means, but whatever it does carry with it, 
is it being executed at the moment he says now? Ba-boom! You know, lightning strike, it happened because Jesus said now. I think hopefully we can agree that the answer is no to that. Um, Sean, John 13, 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Okay, so again talking about events. Uh, This is a sense of the totality of what it is that's going to take place as opposed to now this particular moment. And then one more time, Steve from John 17 and verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. All right. So this is in the middle of Jesus's high priestly prayer. And he is explicitly, you know, he's having a direct conversation, son to father, saying, now, um, 17.5, saying, now, father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And I don't think any of us thinks that it's at that specific moment then that God, uh, that the father um, exalted Christ with glory. So maybe this sense of now, can anyone think of a different word that it, is, it, that it basically means? There's nothing wrong with the use of the word now. It's just we do this in our own language as well. Brandon? Yes. Yes, soon. Going forward. Anyone else? Got a word you want to throw out? Obviously, I have one in mind. I'm seeing if anybody... Once a oh no, we're not, I'm not even repeating that. How about imminent? Imminent. So, in other words, all this stuff that Jesus is saying uh, with the, his use of the word "now" is this whole sense of it's imminent. So, like Brandon was saying, this is about to happen. This is, we're right there. These things are about to be unfolded. It's a done deal. And from the perspective of the Father's plan and the Son executing the Father's plan and Jesus fulfilling his mission, when he says now, I mean, it's like it's been decreed, it's going to happen, it's in chronologically in time, it's about to happen. He uses the word now, but it isn't exactly. So that concept is there as well. Again, I would not say that this like uh, thing is fully supported by this as well. Just with me on the steps. All right. So then the third one. Now this to me starts to be a much stronger. This is where when I was looking at this and kind of studying it, all of a sudden I was like, oh, okay. And the third one is if it is true, if it is true that they receive the Holy Spirit even maybe the sprinkling version, the whole received light, what, wouldn't we expect some change in the apostles' lives from what we had seen up to this point? I mean, yeah. Uh, so, uh, let's say apostles, I don't know. Apostles' lives. So, a couple of things here to note about the apostles' lives. All right, um, where are we with the microphone, Kalen? All right, John. Uh, all right, keep the microphone, but I'm going to actually point out something here in John. 
go back to uh, our area in question. So we were just looking at John 20, 22. Um, actually, go ahead and read John 20, 24, Kaylin. 2024? Yes, John 20, verse 24. So this is two verses after the verse in question. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Okay. So first of all, Thomas wasn't even there. We have an apostle that wasn't there when Jesus goes about this breathing on to receive the Holy Spirit or uh, saying uh, breathing on them for the Holy Spirit. So we have one apostle that was absent entirely. And in addition to that, there's no reference. There's nothing in scripture that shows that Jesus did like some kind of follow up with Thomas. Like, hey, you weren't here. I need to make sure that now I breathe on you or like there's nothing. There's no additional information. All we have is that whoever was there which lacked for sure Thomas, um, received or participated in what Jesus was doing. But we, so we have Thomas missing from the scene. Um, all right, and then, Kaylin, you're still holding the mic, so you get to keep going. Uh, John 20, 26, so this is just another two verses later. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Okay, so now we do have Thomas with them, so we've got that going for him. But here's the thing, is where are they? Look at the verse again, chapter. They're inside, and more, uh, and there we go. Okay, so they're behind locked doors. So... We're talking about now apostles that have seen Jesus and that have experienced whatever's going on here with Jesus breathing on them about receiving the Holy Spirit, and they're still hiding behind locked doors. I would say that that kind of behavior is not, they're, they're continuing. I'm not saying it was sinful that they were behind locked doors. I'm just saying that the, the apostles that we see post-Acts reception of the Holy Spirit is a totally different, the night and day, exhibit A, exhibit B, you know, I mean, two totally, so you had Thomas wasn't there the first time, then when Thomas is there, we see as far as the behavior of the apostles themselves is that they continue to operate behind locked doors, presumably they're behind locked, you know, it's making the point of behind locked doors because they are afraid of the Jewish rulers, all right, then if we look in John 21. Jamie, do you have? Okay. Uh, Verses 1 to 3. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Okay. So, you've got the apostles. They're with the resurrected Jesus. There's this experience that happens, the John 20, 22 experience, where Jesus breathes on them, 
says receive uh, words about receiving the Holy Spirit. Wow, what an experience. What do the apostles do? Go fishing. Okay? So, this is what I'm saying. So they're gone fishing. If I was any kind of an artist, I would absolutely draw a boat and that kind of thing, but I'm not. So we have Thomas wasn't there. We have that they then continue to lock themselves in, presumably out of fear, and that now they've gone about, basically they've returned to their original occupations. They've gone back to like, well, even after seeing Jesus resurrected and having this experience, they have gone back to fishing um, and not to spreading the gospel. Now, those are all things. I think this is building a case, but then the last uh, really puts, puts the whole thing to bed in my estimation, which is uh, a couple of verses out, also out of John. So where are we? Are we? Jo- Joseph, come on, buddy. All right. Joseph, first of all, read John fourteen sixteen. This, this one's more of a setup, really, for the second one. And then Stephen, turned, uh, while he's doing that, turned to John 16, verse 7. Joseph, you're reading John 14, 16. In fact, go 16 and 17. And I will ask my Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even if the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, but it neither sees him nor knows him. You, you know him, for he dwells with you, will be in you. Okay, so he's going to, this is just kind of the setup within John. He is saying he is going to ask the Father to send the Spirit to them and that they, he will be in you. So that's, the, that's how it's going to happen. But then, uh, Stephen, if you could read John 16 and verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Okay. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So that sending is taking place. He's got to go away, and that sending is taking place after, um, uh, after Christ has... Now, let me put a must... So, he needs to go away so that he can send the Holy Spirit. So, if this is all leading to, okay, then he didn't actually, they didn't actually receive the Holy Spirit at that particular time, and that kind of makes that argument, what we are still left with unanswered then is, (laughs) what? Why, so what, what's the deal? Why did, he, why did he breathe on them? What's going on with the John 20 
2022 experience. So I will go back to the comment that I made earlier that bear in mind that John is authoring this after everything that took place. I'm sorry, when I say he authored his gospel after everything that took place to include what took place in receiving the Holy Spirit in Acts and then everything that starts to go on with uh, the creation, the growth of the church, the expansion of the church, and that missionary, you know, um, that, that, um, that mission to be a witness to the resurrection of Christ. And so what John is doing is he knows, because he's on the other side of all this, even though he's going back and writing the Gospel of John, he knows the importance of the connection, the theological connection from everything that had happened to the apostles, everything that Jesus had done physically, and to the, what's going to result of them actually receiving the Holy Spirit. And so he goes out of his way to make sure that he describes this experience that took place because he wants to make a connection of the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus to the power of the Holy Spirit. And um, I liked what um, one commentator put, is that basically this is similar to the idea of when Jesus washed the feet of the apostles. All right. Do you remember the exchange that takes place with Peter when Jesus washes his feet? How does that go down? All right. So he goes, he goes to wash his feet. Peter says, no, 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 no. Don't do that. But what was Jesus' response? Unless, right? Uh, let's see if I, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And then, of course, Peter, oh, well, in that case... You know, if you're going to wash my feet, wash everything. And then Jesus goes on with the teaching. No, no, no. But the point being is that Jesus was physically washing him and then communicates a profound theological truth about the need for Peter to be washed if he's going to have any part with Christ. So the question is, was there anything... um, was Peter gaining a spiritual truth or uh, the, the reality of what Jesus was saying about Peter being a part of all of this with Christ? Was that taking place when Jesus was washing his feet? Is that what Jesus was talking about? I've got to wash your feet. And if I'm, once I'm done washing your feet, then you can be a part of all. No. Jesus was enacting, he was, he was participating in a, in a parable physically with the apostles in washing their feet, which then resulted in a very profound theological teaching that says, look, I'm washing your feet to teach you a lesson about a future reality that I must, you must be washed by me if you are going to have any part of me. And now, I believe what is taking place is that in a similar way, Jesus is, just like washing the feet, 
He is breathing on them because the importance of the connection of the future of their calling as apostles is it swings at them receiving the Holy Spirit, being baptized in the Holy Spirit, receiving it in power. And we know, and we're about to hit it very soon as I continue through Acts, Lord willing, um, everything changes. And I mean, how many times have I already mentioned uh, the, um, the apostles kind of hitting their head against a wall because it's, it's the pre, pre-receiving the Holy Spirit version of the apostles that just don't get it, even though Jesus is explicitly telling them, giving them personal instruction, and they just, they're blind, they're blind, they're blind, all the way up to the point where I just was preaching in Acts 1 about how God has even told them, okay, you've seen me. I mean, my goodness, Thomas physically felt uh, the, his hands and his side, and yet there's no change. Even after that, there's no change. No, no discernible change in them. They go back to fishing, and it isn't until what's going to take place uh, later in Acts 1 and then, of course, in Acts 2 that that just is a complete game changer, which is why I believe we can look back to John 20 and go, okay, John knows all that when he wrote John 20, and he knows that this experience actually happened. So when we read the John 20 uh, experience about Jesus breathing on them, I think that, um, that it can be compared to that. And in fact, I think what kind of helps that as well is if you look at the preceding verse in John 20, 21, it says, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. So, he is go- and is he sending them at that time? And I would say no, because if we just read the order of events, they don't go anywhere. If anything, they go fishing. That's not being sent. Jesus didn't send them to go fishing. So, he's talking about what's going to take place. The Father has sent me. Jesus is going to send them. He breathes on them regarding the reception of the Holy Spirit, including the authority that they are going to have regarding the forgiveness of sins. And then we see that actually carried out in Acts. And so I think what that is, is a, um, I don't know, the best way I can put it is, is it's just like this, this place mark for John to say, up, take place is so important. And you need to see the connection to the resurrection, the ascension, and how Jesus was like, hey, this, this is what's going to happen, and I'm demonstrating that for you. So, um, all right. I'm going to stop there and see if anyone has any input or questions. Or... Let me know if I missed anything. Steve? Nope. Hang on. we got it coming your way. So um, in 2022, the, the statement, receive the Holy Spirit, is that an imperative? You know, that's, uh, let me grab my. I mean, it reads like it is, but I'm not sure if that's what. Yeah, it, it, um, did they put an exclamation point at the end of it? A lot of times that's one way that they kind of communicate that. Oops. I've got an app here that gives the. Oops, that's 
It's Job. Hang on, hang on. John 20. Let's see if it shows it in here. Um, it is not. It is not. It's uh, uh, It's actually a passive. Okay. So, interesting. The reason I mention that is I've heard some people that maybe would deny the idea of the irresistible grace of the Spirit. Oh, or okay. That would say that's a command. And if Jesus is breathing on them, giving the Holy Spirit, and they're not obeying it, that's an example of uh, they can re- people can reject yeah. the Spirit, but it's not even a command. So that's... I don't yeah, think that's best I could, I'm using an uh, a app to look real quick, so I'm not... I'm not 100% on that, but um, I think that's starting to put take things completely out of context to put man in the driver's seat of, of refusing the spirit when that doesn't. Jamie. Going fishing is a great bookend. We see at the start of the Gospels, the, these gentlemen mm-hmm. are fishermen, and they're going fishing. Yeah. And Jesus tells them, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Right. Later on, he teaches them, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and everything else will be added unto you. That means those things necessary for your survival and for, your, um, and for provision of clothes and place to live. But when they say, we're going fishing on the shores of the Galilee, they are saying, we're going back to work. It's not going back to fishing in our sense of the word. It's we're going back to work. We're reestablishing ourselves in the social fabric of the day to provide for ourselves. And yet Jesus comes and he frustrates them in that effort. They catch nothing until they follow his command. They finally get it when they uh, realize who it is on the shore has told them and they have caught a tremendous catch. That their calling is really not to provide for themselves. God will take care of that, but they have to seek first the kingdom of God as instructed. Yeah, and in fact, um, in the passage that we're going to be looking at in the sermon here soon, in verse 8, when it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be, actually we we did already cover this last time. Uh, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria. And then actually in today's, uh, it says, uh, verse 22, um, that they're uh, going to, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So their whole job is to be a witness of his resurrection to the, to the world. So your point. Anyone else? A couple more minutes. Okay. I think uh, from my perspective, the strongest case in the argument is the behavioral change. I mean, Thomas, I mean, it's called doubting Thomas. Like he's literally doubting the thing he's supposed to go um, proclaim. And, um, and so, the, yeah, the behavior seems very starkly different. So it seems, it seems to make sense um, all, all the way across then with it. And uh, I was going to comment on, on as well the, 
<clears throat> the Hebrew into and then Greek on, like that that um, breathing in of the Spirit obviously isn't the Holy Spirit into Adam. It is it is a, a living Spirit, a Spirit of life, but not the Holy Spirit too. So it just seems like there's not a lot of great examples of breathing in like the holy actual holy spirit in even in the old testament or any of that like the holy spirit is referred to a lot um as a spirit but um but i think people will erroneously try to go to use that passage as evidence or context on the holy spirit but really it's not the holy spirit getting breathed into them so it shouldn't be part of the holy spirit conversation I think uh, I'm glad you brought that up because I already forgot to loop back around to it, which is, so to the sentiment of the breath of God creating new life, then this is still correct. It's just that John is making the theological connection that when they receive the Holy Spirit, they have a new life. There is a power that they did not have. There's something new that they didn't have before. And so with that in mind, meaning the symbolic sense of it, it really is that they are receiving new life in a similar sense of the Genesis account. But we don't want to shortcut all that to say that's where they, the, the time uh, that they received the Holy Spirit, just like it happened in Genesis. I think it's a theological connection, not a... I don't know, a one-for-one timing connection. I don't know if I put that the best, but Robert. I think the one nuance to be careful with is when were they converted, you know, along with the Old Testament saints. And it would be uh, tempting for someone to say, well, new life, they weren't converted till this point. They clearly were converted. And um, Peter reacts and gives the answer, and Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Yes. Right? Um, When he says, man, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And you have these examples of of those who can see the kingdom of God. I think one of the operative words is power. Right? The Holy Spirit will come and you will receive power. So they're converted, but there is this... this, um, And I wouldn't say, you know, it's that tension between a partial giving of the Holy Spirit, which, you know, we're fully indwelt with the Holy Spirit, but yet we're called to um, have the fullness of the Spirit uh, in us. And so clearly they were converted, but that additional power, that, that sustaining power, that point in their life, um, just trying to detangle the salvation point from right. this, this difference. I'm, and I'm glad you brought up the, uh, the distinction with salvation because I did not uh, specify and I wasn't trying to insinuate that they weren't prior to either of these that they weren't uh, saved. So thank you for mentioning that. Wrap it up, Steve. Uh, another question is uh, if we synonymous like receive and being filled with the Spirit, I have a, in my experience I tend to apply this individually, but it seems like in these scriptures it's always in the context of when they're gathered together as the church in some form, because in Acts there's going to be a few times where they're filled with the Spirit, 
in Pentecost. I think in Acts 4 it happens. And then I think even in the Jerusalem Council. So it's like always, it's like never an individual, it seems like. It's like when they're gathered together as yeah. a church. Uh, I, I, the only comment I can think to make right now on that is that we need to be careful um, within Acts of taking things that happen in Acts and applying it to how the church operates today because God, and I'm actually going to make the point here in the sermon, uh, that God is basically showing us how the sausage is made a little bit. There's this transition period of developing the church. And so if that's how God is choosing to do things at that particular time, we don't want to grab that and say, aha, this is how the Holy Spirit works now from, from that specific point on. And so the Holy Spirit only does these things in groups. So, and I think that applies to a number of things that, that are going to take place in, in Acts. We've got to be careful not to make an act. I've got to... Sorry. Okay, thank you, Lord, for, uh, thank you for our Sunday school this morning. Thank you that you give us things to chew on, to work on. And may, Lord, we um, always land on the truth. Lord, we want to know your truth, not because any individual says it, uh, but because it really is true. And uh, help us to be Bereans, all of us, to know for ourselves what it is that we believe. Um, so that we might know the truth and proclaim it and be witnesses of Christ's resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.